series that we are going through right now, we are in the book of Genesis, and we are talking about loving our neighbors. And the reason we're in Genesis is because we've looked at how God called Abraham to go to Canaan and to be a blessing to the people there. And so really, he was the first one who was called to love his neighbors. And so we looked last week at his first opportunity to love his neighbors, and we talked about how he completely failed. First of all, he didn't trust God enough to, to stick around during a famine. He went straight to Egypt where they have a, a river they can depend on and they don't have to worry about the rain. And then while he was there, he didn't trust God to protect him, and so he lied and, and betrayed his wife in a really, really ugly way so that uh, in order to save his own skin. And God protected him and maintained his, his promise throughout, uh, but it was not a great example of loving your neighbor. And so we basically said, don't be like Abraham in that instance. Today, we're going to look at his second opportunity to love his neighbor, and we're going to find that Abraham, like all of us, goes like this. He's going to have a good moment, and he's got some bad moments in his future. I think one of the mistakes that we make is we think that we learn something once, that you learn to be like Christ the way you learn to ride a bicycle, or you know those things that just stick in your muscle memory, you can do them all the time. That's not what it's like to be like Jesus. Uh, it's something that we learn, and we relearn, and we relearn, and we fail at, and we succeed, and, and that's what it's going to be like for Abraham. And so today we're looking at chapter three, 13 of Genesis, and another opportunity for Abraham to learn what it's like to love our neighbors. We're looking on a long-term project of loving our neighbors actively, but the first things we have to do, uh, last week we talked about how we need to not fear our neighbors, and today we're going to talk about simply getting along with our neighbors, because for some of us and for some of our neighbors, relationships with our neighbors, actually doing an active project with them or helping them actively is so far beyond it right now, we just need to learn to coexist, right? How do I have a conversation with them without yelling? How do we get to a place, you know, how do we get through the crises that happen with neighbors. And so that's what we're really going to see here. So this time we're just going to go through the, the story kind of verse by verse and unpack what happens with Abraham and his, um, his relationship, this time with his nephew Lot. This, this is immediately after Egypt. It says he went out up from Egypt to the Negev and his wife and everything he had, with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Fairly ill-gotten gains, right? Like that was the money he was given. Essentially, that was the price of his wife. Like that's what the Pharaoh gave him. It's an ugly way that he made his money. From the Negev, he went up, to the, went up from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. So we're off to a strong start, right? That he, lead, he goes back to Canaan. I think he realizes he shouldn't have left. And he goes back to the place in Canaan where he first worshipped God. And so he's back, and he sets up in the altar, and he prays, and he calls on the name of the Lord. And so essentially what we see is he's seeking a fresh start. I think that's important for us to remember because we often struggle with accepting that we get a fresh start. Remember that Abraham has a lot of story ahead of him, and he fell flat on his face right out the gate, but he gets back up, and God continues to work with him, and he gets back into it. He gets back on the horse, so to speak. And I think it's important for us to recognize that when we fall flat, if your first attempt at neighboring is just a fiasco, it's just the first attempt, right? 
And it's, we need to keep working. I am the textbook case of someone who, if I fail the first time, I'll say, okay, that's it. I'm done trying. That's it. You know, it's one of the things I had to learn about prayer is that I would fall out of a prayer rhythm. I'd say, oh, well, I failed at my prayer rhythm. I'm, I'm done. And, and not just keep at it. So that's a, the first encouraging thing that we get from Abraham is you can always go back to God and start again on the mission that he's called you to. But now they're wealthy. They're really rich, which if you are a traveling, a nomadic rancher, that means you have a lot of animals, okay? And so it says that leads to a problem. Now Lot, his nephew, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abraham's, Abraham's herds and, herders and Lot's, the Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. So what's happening is when you're, tr- when you're in a business like Abraham's, you have your camp where everybody lives, but you need to spread out your animals so that they, there's enough food for them. They need to be able to graze for a while, which means they need to be spread out. The more animals you have, the more spread out they need to be, but they're spreading out from the center. And the problem is that the center concurrently has two households in it. So there's two different households that are sending their people out from the same center, which is rife for conflict. Because when people live near each other, that's where we get into problems, right? That's one of the reasons why we like having, why we so much like chosen family these days where you choose who you're going to associate with because you can choose people who live nowhere near you so that you can go home when it gets difficult, or so it won't get difficult, right? You can go home and you don't have to see those friends until you choose to see them again, but neighbors always live next door. And living next door to someone leads to conflict. It leads to bumping into each other. It leads to tension, I should say. Whether it leads to conflict has or is, depends on the choices that we make, but it inevitably leads to tension, even without doing anything wrong. You're just two human beings moving around doing your life. You're going to bump into each other. And that's what's happening to Abraham and Lot. Nobody's done anything wrong. It's just that they've got these huge herds, these huge households, and there isn't enough space. It's not a good idea for them to overlap the way they are. Especially when the land is inhabited and there are cities full of people who, generally cities don't like traveling ranchers because they come in like locusts and eat all your crops. So, so it's just, it's a challenge. So being neighbors made it challenging for Abraham and Lot to live at peace. And that's just inevitable. That there is, that's one of the reasons why we struggle to love our neighbors and why we would prefer avoiding attempting to love our neighbors because if it goes wrong, you can't escape. If it, if it goes badly, they're still going to be on the other side of that fence. They're still going to be stomping on your roof if they're the upstairs neighbors. You know, like whatever it is, you can't get away from them. Now, in this relationship, it's hard for us to quite understand just how dominant Abraham is in his relationship with Lot. Every rule of their culture would say that Abraham is in charge. He is older, he is, he is his uncle, he is richer. Like Everything says that like, he is not only, not only the fam- head of the family, he's the head of the business. This guy is in charge. Lot should do everything Abraham says. So Abraham could just say, hey, Lot... Get your people in line. We're not doing this, right? You guys get second pickings. You can go where my people don't want to go. Or get out of here. This is my land. He could have made any declaration he wanted because it can be his way or the highway. But Abraham handles it very differently. 
Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, this is not, Abraham's not proposing that they sever the relationship. He's proposing that they divide up the land so that they can coexist peacefully. Because again, their household is the center of their ranching organization. If you're going to be able to peacefully coexist, you need to not be based around the same centers. So he, he goes to Lot, and he, but his heart is that this conflict is not good. His, his, it's not the fact that he's worried about losing out on grazing rights. He is concerned about the relationship. And so he approaches Lot in an unusual way for that culture. He doesn't have to approach him as a peer. The word that he uses for close relatives is actually brother. He doesn't have to approach him that way. He could just lay down the law. But Abraham genuinely cared about keeping peace with Lot. He didn't just want to win in the struggle for land. He didn't just want to stay in control, which is everybody's dream, right? Every human being's dream is to be in control of their circumstances 24-7, right? That's all we would just, that is the dream. I think that's the temptation of wealth is because the wealthier you are, the more you think you can control your circumstances. But that's what we want is control. But Abraham cares first and foremost about being at peace with Lot. He cares about the relationship more than the circumstances. And so he makes this interesting offer to Lot, and it's very risky. He says, is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, there's an interesting thing going on in the translation here. In Hebrew, there aren't really words that just mean like north, south, east, and west. Their cardinal directions are, are the words they use assume that you're facing east. So it's left, right, and forward, and backward. And in this context, what he's actually saying is he's saying, if you go to the south, I'll go to the north, and if you go to the north, I'll go to the south. Because remember, they are standing roughly, if you also include the Negev, they're standing kind of in the middle of the promised land. And what he is essentially offering is to split the promised land with Lot. What he's expecting to happen is this, that Lot's going to pick half and Abram's going to pick half, and they're going to coexist that way. So that's what he's expecting to do. He says, all right, we're standing here in the middle. You go, you go one way, I'll go the other way, and we'll just split. Notice what he's doing. He's, you know the whole you cut, I'll choose, or I'll cut, you choose thing? He's saying you cut and choose. You pick one way, I'll go the other way, and we'll just we'll split the promised land. So Abraham generously offered to share the promised land with Lot. He didn't have to. But in seeking peace, he was willing to actually share the promised land with Lot. And I already gave this away a little bit. He also he even allowed Lot to choose his portion of the land. That's a risk. That's a gamble, right? That's, that's giving up control where he didn't have to. Here's one of the difficult things that I'm learning, especially from this story. I, I, I thought of this as I was putting together a story that I think whenever we want to make genuine peace, I think that always comes at the cost of, of control. 
that if your resolution to a problem involves you maintaining control the entire time, you're probably not really going to have peace. Because the person you're making peace with didn't really get to participate in it. They, they basically got what you gave them. That's not peace. That's victory. Right? If you're in control of the whole process, you didn't make peace. You just won. Um, but peace involves us giving up some level of control so that we can make a mutual agreement. You, go, you have to mutually agree to peace. And so he took a gamble. He took a risk in giving Lot genuine, uh, a genuine choice here, and he gave up control of his inheritance, of, of the, the land that he had been promised. The scripture doesn't say this, but here's what I think is happening. I think Abraham is having one of his better moments where he trusts that God's actually going to take care of him, that he can make, take that risk and he can make that offer because it will lead to peace. And that's what God has him out there to do, is to bless people. And, and peace is a blessing. So I think that's what's going on. Is you know what? I messed this up last time. This time, I'm actually going to act as if I trust God's promise to me. And God, God watches over this whole process. Because Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot looks at the land, and instead of looking north and south, he looks east and west. And he looks over to this area where the Jordan is. Now, you remember last week we talked about why there's there's famine in Canaan, but not in Egypt. Because in Canaan, you have to trust to God to send the rain. But in Egypt, you just depend on the river. Well, Lot looks around, and he sees one patch of land that is as much like Egypt as possible, because it's got the Jordan River. And back then, uh, it was a lot more fertile than it is now. Archaeologists believe that there was a meteor that struck near there and um, devastated the ecology and actually may have been what killed the Dead Sea. Um, Something in the Bible about something getting destroyed in that area, too. But at that time, it was fertile, and it's dependable because there's a river. So for Lot, I think his mindset is, hey, I still don't like this whole depending on God to send the rain thing. I'm going to go where I don't have to have faith. I can just depend on the river. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out to the east. Now there it actually says set out, in, set out forward. Because the word is, it assumes you're facing east and says go forward. So instead of making this split, Lot made this split. Lot chose the land to the east, and he moved that direction. So Abraham didn't actually end up losing any of his inheritance. Even though he gave up complete control, Lot made the choice that gave Abraham everything that God had promised him. So the two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities in the plain, and pitched his tent near Sodom. Like I said, I believe that Abraham, I hope that Abraham made this decision because he, was, he had a moment of really trusting God. Because so often when we face situations like these, you know, we face issues in our neighborhoods, right? Whether it's uh, fighting over a property line or dogs that bark at all hours or personalities. Like we, because we, when we live near people, there are things at stake. 
right? Your, the, the, the noise level in your home is at stake. Or the, you know, my brother uh, once had a, an issue with a neighbor. They came and cut down a tree that like shaded his house. And they, they said it was on their property and just cut it down. Like living near people is hard. And th- because things are always at stake. And for Abraham, so much was at stake here. And yet, Abraham could pursue peace without fear because he trusted God to keep his promises. Because God had made a promise to him. I have a mission for you. I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to look after you for the purposes of that mission. Remember, we talked about how it's basically a spoiler that Abraham knows nothing's going to happen to him, at least until he has a kid. Like, the, the end, like he has to have a kid because God promised he was going to be, become a nation. So the, God's given away a lot of the plot here. And in this moment, Abraham is acting like it. That he is able to take what other people would consider a risk for the sake of creating peace because he knows that his survival is not at stake. His mission in life is not at stake. That God is looking out for him, not to give him everything he wants, but to give him what he needs in order to fulfill his purpose and his mission as a member of God's people. God even then reaffirms. You'll notice as you read through the story of Abraham, when Abraham does something well, God comes in afterward and reminds him of the promise. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around where you are to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone did count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving, you, giving it to you. So God reaffirms this promise in this moment when Abraham has actually trusted in it and has followed it and taken a risk to keep peace with his neighbor. And God says, yeah, that's, I'm keeping my promise. I'm with you. I'm behind you. You're, you're doing the right thing. And here's the thing. Oftentimes, when we are in a conflict with our neighbors or conflict with anyone, really, we will react out of our a short-sighted desire to win or to protect whatever we think is at stake. And we might win in the short term, but we pay for it in the long term. One of the things we're going to find out, and you saw kind of foreshadowed, is that Lot is going to pay for his decision in the long term. He made a hasty decision based on making sure that he got the best, most dependable land, and he's going to run into problems because of it. This is an interesting thing for Abraham. Abraham made a wise decision, made a faithful decision, and that decision was going to pay dividends in the future because someone who knew the story of Israel reading this, who, who lived in Israel reading this, they would have had current, modern, or current politics in their mind because ultimately this land, the green land, is mainly going to be Israel. The orange and the red are going to be Ammon and Moab, which are nations that descend from Lot, from Lot's grandsons. And there's actually like four or five nations around here that all inherit the promise of Abraham that his family would, rule, would have this land, right? And they're never going to be completely at peace with each other, but the Hebrews are the ones who left and came back, right? It would be easy to argue that they, left, they lost their claim to the land. It would be easy for Lot's descendants to say, hey, that's our land. You shouldn't have been there in the first place. And they never really try to do that. All they really try to do is be independent and, you know, like raid Israel's borders. And I had to think that 
to some degree, the fact that Abraham handled Lot genuinely, generously, it made it so that there, 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 it didn't sow a seed of bitterness that could have driven those relationships in a totally different direction. They have a different relationship with Moab and Ammon than they did, do with Egypt, right? And they, they did handle it poorly with Egypt. And so what's happening, to some degree at least, is that Abraham's faithful actions laid the foundation for long-term peace. The fact that he handled it with integrity laid the foundation for the next encounter they were going to have. Because if you, if you fight for a short-term victory, they're your neighbors. You're going to run into them again. Right? And you may win a short-term victory at the cost of a long-term relationship. Because the next time they come around, you've broken their trust. You're not the person they're going to want to talk to when they have something come up. You're not, they're not even going to talk to you next time there's a conflict. They're going to go straight to the HOA or to the, the cops or whatever. You know, like We make short-term decisions, knee-jerk reactions in the wrong way, and it sours the relationship. But they're your neighbors, and you're called to love them. So making wise decisions, making generous decisions, is what lays the foundation for that long-term relationship. Now, the re- this may seem like, like kind of a, almost not important enough to make a sermon. Like, oh, we're just talking about how you handle conflicts as neighbors. And that's like, yeah, we could also, you know, just have like community meetings about conflict resolution, things like that. Does that really need a sermon? Is this really that much of a gospel issue? Yes, it absolutely is. Because God commands his people to live at peace with their neighbors. And the peace that comes from being transformed by Christ is part of the good news. I'll just give you a brief, brief. we're just going to touch on a few places that should hopefully make the point. Jesus said, be at peace with each other in Mark. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Paul said, live at peace with each other. He said, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. James said, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Paul said, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. He also said, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Does peace matter to God? It absolutely does. Peace is part of the blessing. As much of a curse as a bad neighborhood, neighbor relationship can be, how much of a blessing is a good neighbor relationship? How much of a blessing is it to be in a neighborhood of peace? I don't know if you've ever experienced a neighborhood with a lot of conflict versus a neighborhood where everybody gets along. It's a different world. This isn't just like how to be good citizens or good members of a neighborhood. This is how to live out the gospel. We are supposed to be people who bring peace where we go. We're not supposed to be people who add to the conflict. And we have a unique ability as believers in Christ, as children of God, to bring peace to a place. We, we have an added hope of bringing peace for two reasons. Number one is that God's people can take risks for peace because God promises to support them. Abraham went into that, negotiate, that situation with Lot with the promise God made him in Genesis 12. Well, that promise continues for all of God's people. And you'll notice You can see this promise made right at the front of Jesus' most famous sermon. If you're familiar with any of the sayings of Jesus, you're probably familiar with the Beatitudes. And I want you to pay attention to the formula. It says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Notice what he's doing. He's taking situations in which we normally would not consider that person blessed. It is hard and risky to be meek. People might walk all over you. It is risky to be merciful. People might use that against you. It is risky to be a peacemaker because if you're a peacemaker, you're probably not going to get everything you would want out of the situation. You probably have to compromise. These are situations that people don't think are blessed. But why are they blessed? Because God has your back. The meek will inherit the earth. Not because meekness is the best strategic option, but because God ensures that the meek inherit the earth because meekness is part of God's plan design for the world. If you're meek in God's name, God has your back. He's working through you. If you are merciful, why is that a blessing? Not because it's easy to be merciful, but because you will be shown mercy by God. Why is it blessed to be a peacemaker? Not because it's easy, not because you're going to come out wealthy or prosperous or it's going to be easy for you, but because you will be called children of God because of the family resemblance. God... We, we can pursue peace, we can take risks, we can do things that other people wouldn't because we can trust that God has everything in hand and that his plan triumphs. We don't have to be afraid, like we talked about last week. In a way, we're, we're writing checks out of God's bank account. Right? We trust. I'm not saying that God's going to give you all the money you want. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that God will have your back as you make peace in his name. Now, it doesn't mean you'll always be successful. You know, it says that, uh, so far as it depends on you, seek peace, because peace requires both sides. But as God's people, we are called to bring peace, and we have an additional hope, not just the fact that we can take risks because we've got God backing us, but also the fact that Jesus Christ creates peace. Paul says in Ephesians, Jesus is our peace who has made the Jews and Gentiles one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the, wall with its command, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now it's important to remember, this is not abstract for Paul's audience. When he talks about the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, he is talking about an ethnic rivalry that is a thousand years old, that is violent, that cuts across cities. Like, this, is, this is segregation that has been going on for longer than it ever happened in America. Like, the division between Jews and Gentiles is violent and hard, and it cuts across every city. And he's saying that Jesus Christ is tearing down that wall. He's bringing people together. He's creating peace by uniting them around himself. And that's how Paul can also say in Colossians, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So the gospel has the power to bring peace to every relationship and neighborhood. And so not only do we have the ability to be more active for peace and take risks for peace, but we also can introduce people to Jesus who can make peace in our hearts. He can actually change the heart of the person that we're seeking peace with. He can change our hearts so that we can make peace with others. The only real hope for our neighborhoods and our families and our world to be at peace is for it to be transformed by Jesus and for Jesus to be brought into our neighborhoods by the people who follow him. Amen? And that's our mission. That's who we are. 
That's what we do. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful that you, you bring peace to the world, that there is hope for the conflicts that divide us to be resolved in you. We thank you that you can bring peace to our families, you can bring peace to our, bring peace to our neighborhoods, to cultures that are at war, to nations that are at war. Father, we recognize that we play a critical role in that in that peace. And so we pray that you would give us hearts that desire peace, that seek peace. Give us the presence of mind to seek the long-term good and not just short-term satisfaction. Help us to see our neighbors as your children in need of your love. Help us to value relationship over control. Help us to look like your son when we encounter people who feel like obstacles or enemies. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get ready for our final song, I, I want you to consider some ways that you can act on what we've been talking about today. Um, we believe that a fully functioning disciple of Jesus uh, connects with God and his church, grows in faith and love, and serves our community and world. And so the best